Hi, everyone, and thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Paradox Free Speech and Medicine podcast. You may already know the name of Dr. Richard Chavis from hearing him on the news or reading him in the newspaper from as many years as a prominent public health official, including 10 years as Chief Medical Officer of Health of Ontario. But you won't have heard him for the last three years as he was blacklisted for his heretical views on COVID. All doctors agree that X is true now actually means that we don't interview doctors who don't agree that X is true. Looking back on the last three years, it's obvious that we got a lot wrong. A two-week lockdown would flatten the curve. Mask mandates would stop the spread. Hand washing was the answer. Shutting down society wouldn't cause any harm. After all, we're doing it for noble reasons. Public health consistently overpromised and underdelivered. They consistently exaggerated the risks of COVID while dismissing risks of their interventions. They acted as though we needed to be treated like misbehaving children and thus took total control of our lives, acting like tyrannical parents. I was so honored that Dr. Shabas took the time to speak with me. His views are reasonable, logical, nonpartisan, and therefore he is very refreshing in this polarized time. In my opinion, the last three years would have been much better with someone like him at the helm. In this episode, we talk briefly about the Sydney tarpons and the trolley problem. I put links to both of these issues in the show notes. Dr. Shabas defines the difference between case isolation case isolation, which is logical, and quarantine, which is illogical and unsupported. He references the 2019 pandemic plan of the WHO, which recommends against most of the measures that governments mandated during COVID. An apology to you listeners and to Dr. Chavis. First, I'm sorry that I've mispronounced his name on several occasions. Secondly, I'm my own tech support. I managed to cut Dr. Chavis off in part one. He was just saying how I don't know anyone who died personally. The personally part of that got cut off. And then you'll notice a disjoint as we launch into part two, where I accidentally chatted with him for 10 minutes while uh, forgetting to hit the record button. So we start back with a bit of a laugh, and we had lost our place a little. Despite my technical ineptitude, the interview is very well worth listening, and there's a lot of wisdom from Dr. Shabas that I think is uh, long overdue, and I, I hope you enjoy listening to him as much as I did. Hi, everyone. Uh, thanks very much for taking the time to listen. I'm very, very excited to have a chance finally to talk with uh, Dr. Richard Shabas, who is, I think, one of the very interesting people who we should have been listening to since COVID started. Uh, I'm not going to say much more than that because I'm going to get him to introduce himself first, but I think you'll find his uh, views as important as I do. So, uh, Dr. Shabas, maybe you can just tell us a little bit about your your background, your qualifications, and who you are. Well, I'm 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 currently I'm a I'm a retired physician and and a, and a grandfather, but uh, I practiced medicine for uh, 40 years. Um, my primary uh, professional area was in public health. Uh, I've got a Royal College Fellowship in in public health. I worked as a local health officer uh, in Ontario and then as chief medical officer of health for Ontario for for 10 years. And then later in my career, I came back and was a local medical officer again for for a few years. So I have a very long experience in public health. I've also worked for people like Cancer Care Ontario. I was chief of staff at uh, York Central Hospital, which quite by chance landed me in the middle of the 2003 SARS. (laughs) 
uh, outbreak. Uh, in addition, I'm a clinician uh, or was a clinician. I was a specialist in internal medicine and practiced general internal medicine in a variety of settings for uh, for you know, about about 35 years. Um, so so that that's my background. I had I had retired. Uh, six years ago or four, three years before, before COVID struck and uh, was happy not to bear any of those, those burdens and responsibilities. Uh, but when COVID returned, when COVID emerged rather in, in, in early 2000, uh, 2020, uh, I felt it was important that, 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 uh, that, it, that my perspective or the perspective that I'd held professionally and that I'd shared with some others uh, was voiced and and spoke out on on some of those issues, but uh, but was very quickly cancelled, uh, cancelled uh, by the by the mainstream media and, and specifically by the by the CBC. So I've found uh, the last three years to be to be deeply frustrating on 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 many levels. Um, partly because I think we've made a lot of very bad decisions. I think we have done ourselves and in particular our children uh, a great deal of harm, and, and I think. We've also done great harm to our, our fundamental traditions of, of, of democracy and free speech and open debate, uh, the way in which uh, views like mine were stifled, the way in which people have been persecuted by, by, uh, by uh, professional colleges for expressing what in many cases are quite reasonable views, but views that are counter to the, uh, the conventional wisdom. I think we've done ourselves great harm. So I've, I've found the last, uh, the last three years to be very painful, very disillusioning. Um, but I'm an incorrigible optimist, so mm -hmm. I think we will, in fact, learn the lessons of our mistakes. It may take a few years, but we will learn those lessons. And hopefully, before anything like this presents itself again, we will be in a better position to deal with it than we were three years ago. Right, right. Um, so it's interesting. We, you and I were talking before we started to record that we, we have some some overlap and interests with the uh, you had done some work on the Sydney tarpon situation. We won't get into that. But I also um, I, I worked in Belleville, Ontario during SARS one. And uh, it's interesting to me that you were quite involved with that. Um, what why do you think our approach to SARS one was so incredibly different than than SARS two? Obviously, there there are different diseases as we found out, but we really didn't know when we made the first policies for for SARS CoV two that it was going to be that different. Like, what do you think was different about society or our, our approach that that we had such a different way of way of acting going into SARS two? Well, actually, I'm not sure it was that different. I, I, I wrote an opinion piece way back in 2020 about the very beginning, which when I still had some sort of a, a platform um, in which I, I drew attention to what I thought was the biggest mistake we'd made with SARS-1. In SARS-1, we kept worrying about what might happen and, and paid insufficient attention to what actually was happening or, or wasn't happening. I, I mean, the key thing that people should understand about SARS-1 is that the reason SARS-1 did not develop the way COVID did as a, as a global health uh, problem was that the, the virus was just not sufficiently infectious. And although that wasn't 
properly appreciated at the beginning, it was a virus that could only spread in very special circumstances, primarily in acute care hospitals. And once you took a prop, proper infection control measures in acute care hospitals, SARS-1 vanished. And, mm -hmm. and that was not appreciated. Instead, there, was, there were panic stations. And we did things like, like in, in we introduced quarantine. Quarantine was something that I thought had gone out with the, you know, had gone out with the, with the Model T. And yet here it was brought back suddenly, just we we're going to quarantine people. Mm. An incredibly stupid thing to do. And one that actually made no sense at all with SARS-1 because it didn't spread it before people were, were symptomatic. So, but people got it into their heads when we put in place quarantine and then SARS went away, they got it into their heads that quarantine was what got rid of, of SARS. So we, we embedded the wrong lessons from SARS-1. And unfortunately, even though there's some literature, some of it written by me, which says, no, 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 that's got it all wrong. Mm -hmm. Nobody paid any attention to that. So I think, again, at the beginning of COVID, we, we made exactly the same mistake because we got very badly spooked. The world was very badly spooked by the mathematical models and the mathematical modelers who said the sky is falling. They mm. produced, as you may recall, these, these apocalyptic visions. There were going to be 40 million people dead by midsummer in 2020, according to the extreme versions of their, of their models, which was all anybody planned on and talked about. And nobody took the obvious step of asking, well, how good are these models? What's their track record? Somebody predicts the Maple Leafs are going to win the Stanley Cup. I think, well, that's great, but how good are their predictions? And if they've been predicting it every year for 50 years, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to buy, I'm not going to book the victory parade quite yet. So, but, but nobody did that. Everybody said, oh, this is, we've, got, we've got to do this. Otherwise, everybody's going to die. And we got into this way of, we sort of anchored in this vision of this, this apocalyptic uh, microbiological catastrophe. And while, while COVID did turn out to be a very serious event, far, far more serious than SARS-1, and I, for one, underestimated that initially, but it was nowhere near, on the other hand, it was nowhere near the, the, uh, the apocalypse that was predicted. We now know that the, the infection fatality rate, for example, is about, is at least 10 times lower than was predicted by the, by the models. We know that it didn't spread anywhere near as rapidly as they said. So it didn't mean it wasn't a serious event, but we didn't have to panic the way we did. And once we panicked, we adopted all of these very dubious measures, things, all the, the various measures of lockdown for which there was little or no evidence. We embraced them as a, as a measure of, of, our, of our panic. We used fear as, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a tool to, to, instead of trying to quell fears, we promoted fears. They wasn't stay calm and carry on. It was panic and do as we say. Um, and we used fear, and once that's a, a terrible mistake. Any risk communicator will tell you that's a terrible mistake. We did it, and we're now, three years later, still reaping the, the harms of that because it's so hard in many people to turn down that level of fear, even though public health is saying, okay, calm down, calm down. Mm. Very, very hard to do. We did it all without any real sense of what it was we were trying to accomplish. And that's why we sort of very quickly morphed from, well, we'll flatten the curve for a few weeks into the sort of zero COVID mentality, which really mm -hmm. dominated Canadian thinking we were going to stamp this damn thing out, which of course was, was absurd. And, and, and history has shown it's, it's absurd, but that 
very much got into our thinking and, and was why we continue to employ these sort of these extreme non-evidence-based uh, measures. And, and, and in the end, we have, we've done ourselves, I think, I think great harm as a result. But I think fundamentally, it's because we did not stay rational. We did not stay calm. We were too worried, always too worried about what might happen and not sufficiently focused on what was actually going on. Gotcha. What do you think of um, one of the things that's concerned me? I, I've been involved with public health in various ways for a long time, although I'm not, you know, officially trained in it. Um, one of the things that concerned me when when nudging came out, you know, in these nudge units, it, it concerned me because it seemed like before we developed nudging as a thing, it, it, public health was always about a, a conversation with. Uh, sentient adults and trying to treat them like sentient adults, even though they might make decisions that you thought were wrong about smoking or whatever. We, we, we tried to treat people. Uh, it wasn't so paternalistic. Do, do you see that as part of it or am I just sort of. Oh, no, 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 I, I, it is. And, and I'd, I'd even go one step further and I would talk about the, the, uh, the, the, the frequent and extreme use of coercion on public health measures. I mean, public health has always had a legal basis. When I was medical officer of health or chief medical officer of health, we always had legal tools to, if necessary, make people do some things, but we hardly ever used them. And when we did, the law required that we have a very high standard of evidence to do that. And people had the right of appeal. They said, no, you're wrong. Like there was a very open, easy mechanism uh, of appeal. So public health was the way I practiced it, the way it was practiced around me, was really all about persuasion, not about coercion. Coercion was something we, we used rarely. But with COVID, from the beginning, and I think because it was fear-fueled, everything became about coercion. It wasn't enough to say, oh, I think I'm persuaded that the evidence on masks suggests that people should wear masks. It was, oh my God, I'm going to make you wear a mask. You're going to have a mandate. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like we think these vaccines are useful and people should take them up. We're going to make you, make you use them. Uh, and and it, right, right the way down the line, it's all been about about coercion, about using, about using government power, state, state authority to try to make people do things. And I think, again, that's been a terrible mistake. Mm -hmm. I think we need to look no further than what's happened with vaccines, was that you know, we, we, the, the vaccines were reduced. The vaccines were a wonderful thing, in my opinion. They saved many, many millions of lives globally um, of vulnerable people. And, and, and they, they, had a, they had a huge impact. One of the really, really great accomplishments, one of the positive things was the way in which the vaccines were produced so quickly. But again, when they were introduced, it wasn't just about go out and get your vaccine. It was we're going to make you get your vaccine. We're going to, you're going to lose your job. You're not going to be able to do the activities. You're not going to be able to travel. You're not going to be able to do anything if you don't do exactly as we said. And, and, and some people, I think, who were kind of sitting on the fence were pushed to being anti-vaxxers mm -hmm. because they, not because they were sure they didn't want to be vaccinated, uh, but because they didn't want to be coerced in that manner. And, 
what that did, I think, in the long run, yes, there was a short-term bump in immunization because some of the people sitting on the fence said, oh, what the hell, I'm, I'm not going to lose my job over this. Okay, I'll get vaccinated. But in the long run, I think it, it, it undermined people's confidence in the vaccines, which is why we now have the situation that technically, I think 87% or 86% of Canadians over the age of five are now uh, technically vaccine hesitant because mm-hmm. they're, they're not up to date on their vaccines. They're not following public health recommendations because you know you can you can force people to do things but you undermine people's confidence in these things when you feel you have to force them to do it so i think there was a i think that in the long run the vaccine mandates as well as being as it turns out scientifically unjustified were also a huge public health mistake because people the public has lost confidence in our advice because we don't think our advice is good enough Right. So with a specific question on vaccines, in your estimation, like, is there kind of a certain age or health status cutoff where you think they would become something that maybe shouldn't be recommended? Like, for instance, if you're a healthy, slim 17-year-old male athlete, should you be vaccinated? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I, I think I think the I don't know where to put cutoff line and, and there may not be a cutoff line. It may be, it's kind of like influenza vaccine. In fact, it's very similar to influenza vaccine. Influenza vaccine is, is, a, is, is in my opinion, a very useful thing to do for people who are at high risk of complications of influenza. So that's basically the frail elderly. And I think mm-hmm. most, most places in Canada say over 65, Quebec says over 75. I think Quebec's probably got it right, but there certainly are some people who I think should get the flu vaccine. So when my, you know, it's, but there are there are many people like virtually everybody who's under the age of sixty five or seventy five, uh, who's who's healthy, for whom the flu vaccine is a pretty marginal undertaking. You know, pretty marginal undertaking. Yeah, there are benefits, and yeah, it's a it's a safe vaccine, and that you know serious complications are extremely rare, but. Do I get excited about it? Would I say to someone, take two hours out of your life and go to a flu clinic if you're a healthy 17-year-old? No. Do I advise my kids to get it or my grandchildren to get it? No, I don't, I don't think it's worth it. COVID vaccine, I think the considerations are similar. The conclusions may be a little different, but, but the, the considerations are, are similar. So for, for, people, for, for people over the age of, I don't know, 65 or 70, or people with serious medical comorbidities, yes, of course, you should, have, you should have gotten the vaccine. You should have gotten it at the first opportunity because whatever whatever potential harms there were from the vaccines and no, no biological uh, pharmaceutical preparation is going to be entirely without risk, but the benefits greatly outweighed it. But for younger people, no, very marginal. Yeah, maybe it's a good idea to get it. I'm, I'm no harm, no big harm. But for, for your seven, healthy 17-year-old male athlete, mm-hmm. you know, Maybe yes, maybe no. Uh, certainly not a second dose based on what we now know because the booster doses seem to be particularly serious in terms of causing myocarditis. But, but we didn't take that approach. We, mm. because, because again, asking why, I think it's because we, 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 we developed this kind of fear-based uh, approach to the vaccines. Mm-hmm. The vaccines were going to stop transmission of the disease. Right. And frankly, 
two years ago, I thought that was very likely. I thought it, you know, like with the analogy with measles vaccine and polio vaccine, that if we got enough people immunized, that it would stop the transmission of the vaccine. But I was also aware that the clinical trials weren't based on that, that we didn't really have evidence of that. Clinical trials were based on lowering the, the risk of symptomatic and serious illness, not of lowering infection. And, and it became very clear uh, very quickly that, in fact, the vaccines were not very effective and ultimately probably not effective at all uh, at, at reducing, at reducing uh, infection. And so that huge rationale of, of encouraging and coercing people who were not really at serious risk for the complications of COVID to, to coerce them to get the vaccine was simply wrong. Uh, in Ontario, at one point in our vaccine mandate, a 12-year-old, a healthy 12-year-old who wanted to participate in recreational activities had to get immunized. Well, that that's just that's just crazy. That's just crazy. And and it it but it was again, it was based on this false appreciation of mm. what the vaccines could accomplish, which ultimately we should recognize was never evidence-based. And as the evidence emerged, it became clear that that they that they 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 didn't reduce, they didn't eliminate transmission, and even in the long run, didn't even really reduce transmission. And that's why you've seen the mandates sort of fade away. The mandates, which were such a big feature two years ago, well, there aren't mandates anymore. You know, public employers are calling back the people they fired for not getting vaccinated because they need them and because there's no there's no no rationale there. Right. We, we had talked a little bit before about <clears throat> how the thinking around the tarpons changed over years, but it just, it, 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 rather than anybody admit that they had been wrong, it just kind of faded away. And uh, do you think that that's maybe part of the problem and the, the, the lack of trust in public health is partly because nobody has said, listen, sorry, I said these would stop transmission and we were really wrong on that. We apologize. Do you think that would help at all at this point if somebody actually said that? Sure. You know what I really think? I, I mean, one of the, one of the, again, I keep talking about mistakes. One of the many, many mistakes that have been made is that we have overpromised. Public health has overpromised. It was, well, you know, we'll go into lockdown for a few weeks and that'll solve the problem. And then you probably don't remember this, but back in the spring of 2020, I actually gave testimony, <clears throat> excuse me, at the, um, the House of Commons Health Committee and the two other people who were on the Zoom call giving testimony to public health people. This is May of 2020. They said, oh, don't worry. We're going to control this with contact tracing. Contact mm-hmm. And I said, whoa, that's crazy. Here, I can't control the respiratory virus with contact tracing. But no, that was the promise. Just get our case count down. And then come the fall, we've got contact tracing. We've all got these apps and we'll take down lists of names. That lasted about about 15 minutes before they abandoned contact tracing because it was crazy. So they consistently, and then masks were going to stop. And if 80% of people wore masks, transmission was going to stop. No, 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 no. And, and so by consistently <clears throat> over-promising and not having, uh, I mean, masks, I could talk all day about masks, mm. but the, the, the line of masks was, well, if 80% of people will wear them, we can stop transmission. And then it's now proven that masks stop, masks work, they stop transmission. Mm. I can understand why a public health person might say, I think masks are a good idea. I can understand how 
three years ago in, 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 in April or May, someone said, you know, I think we're not sure how to deal with this. We don't have a lot of evidence, but we think encouraging people to wear masks in, in crowded public places, indoor public places makes sense. Okay, so what they did, they said, oh no, we have proof that they work and everybody has to wear them and it's gonna stop transmission. And instead of having the humility six months or a year or two years later to come and say, you know what, we overpromised. Mm-hmm. The evidence is not what we said it was. It's not proven. There's some evidence, but it's not great evidence either way. Uh, and 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 we're probably a little too heavy-handed in making people wear masks. Yeah, I think if public health were to come clean, I would have given my eye teeth just once, just once to hear a public health official go up in front of the microphone and said, let's put this problem in perspective. Instead of just producing raw numbers about how many people died yesterday and how many people have died in total, let's put this in the perspective of the other things that are going on with health so that we can, we, we can give it some scale. That ne- I never, never heard a public health person say that. I spent most of my career in public health and my public messaging trying to put risks into perspective, trying to get people mm. to understand why it was really important you did this and maybe a good idea you did that, but maybe not quite so important. So, you know, that's why we made such a big deal about smoking. Smoking still kills, you know, 40,000 people a year in Canada, way more, way more than COVID did at its very worst. Mm. But, but. There's no perspective, and we've never made an effort to put either the disease or the effectiveness of our control measures or what we think will be the effectiveness of our control measures into any kind of perspective. Yeah, and maybe I'll just throw in the number here for people that I think we're currently at less than around 3% of deaths, maybe it might be up to 4%, but three, about 3% of deaths in Canada over the last three years have been COVID deaths. So 97% of people who have died in Canada have died of run-of-the-mill boring cancer heart disease. And, and actually, actually, they, just to add to that, and if you take into account, a, a, you know, it's a very important concept in, in epidemiology and public health is what we call premature mortality. In other words, we view the death of a, of a child as, as different than the death of a 95-year-old. Now, that doesn't mean that we want 95-year-olds to die. It doesn't mean that their lives are not important. But a child actually is, in terms of mortality, in terms of social impact, more important. And, and so we have various ways of measuring premature mortality. And because COVID so overwhelmingly killed people who were very old and very frail, mm-hmm. The premature mort- the impact on premature mortality is much less than 3%. Now, I've not seen it actually calculated, but it's likely to be more like 1%. That's not nothing. That's a serious event. But it basically puts us back. You know, one of the things, again, people don't understand is that our health and our, our, our mortality risk, that's been improving steadily for the last, well, 200 years. Mm-hmm. And so a setback like this doesn't take us back to 1900. It takes us back to about 2017 in terms of what your risks are. So it's not a good thing. It's not none of the, but, but again, perspective. It's not something that should make people fearful. Way back at the beginning, way back in March of 2020, when the whole world was shutting down, when people were, were it, was, it was crazy. I mean, Toronto was deserted. There was nobody out on the streets. It was like this, it was like something out of a science fiction movie. So I worked through the numbers in my own head. I had an estimate based on what we'd seen around the world of what the the infection fatality risk was, what my risk was, all of those things. And I I estimated that in the next year, 
that COVID was going to increase my mortality risk by about 10%, 10% more than it would have been otherwise. Um, and 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 turns out that was too high for Canada, but that was my estimate at the time. That was more in line, actually, with what happened in the United States or in Britain. But then I said, well, okay, but I'm 68 years old, and I know that from every year of our lives, from about age 60 onwards, every year we get older, our risk of dying goes up by 10%. Hmm. So by being a 68-year-old having to face the risk of COVID, it means I'm facing the mortality risk that I would otherwise expect to face a year from now as a 69-year-old. So that's not a good thing, but just but it's not something that's going to leave me lying awake at night, just like now I'm three years older and I'm still facing up to those. I'm now 30% more likely to die than I was three years ago because I'm three years older. It's so... The, the, the message I drew from that is, well, you know, I'm going to be a little careful. I'm not going to go to visit people who I think are sick with COVID. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to be, I'm going to be cautious to that degree, but I'm not going to shut my life down. I'm not going to go running and hiding. I'm going to see my grandchildren because nothing is more important to me than seeing my, my grandchildren. And I'll accept what I view as a very small additional risk of dying to be able to do that. But nobody offered that perspective. Nobody tried to put the risk. It was all raw numbers. People don't understand raw numbers. They think, oh, my God, 40,000 people died in Canada. That's the end of the world. Well, as you said, no, actually, it's not the end of the world. It's not at all. It's people die. It's something that happens. And we look at we look at, at long term care homes where a, a very large proportion of the deaths, particularly early on in the in the outbreak, I think. In the first outbreak, something like two-thirds of our deaths, or maybe even more, were in long-term care homes. People in long-term care homes have a very high mortality rate. They 25% of people in long-term care homes die every year, not from COVID, but just because they're very old and very frail. And so most of those people who died in long-term care home outbreaks in COVID in the first year or two, in all probability would have died anyway by now. And that's very sad. That's very sad. Nobody wants these people to die. Nobody wants any of us to die. Mm -hmm. But that's what's going to happen. And to, to shut down society, to use that as the rationale for shutting down society, and I'll keep coming back to it, for penalizing children, for depriving children of basic human rights, like a right of education, no excuse for that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to, in terms of the, the kind of the death count issue, so just to speculate, in 1968, we had the Hong Kong flu and the worldwide death estimates were from one to four million. You know, it's a pretty big range. But let's say it was a middling 2.5 million. It's uh, a, a world that had one third the population we have now. So that would be the equivalent of three to 12 million deaths in our current world. Right. So it basically, it was really on par with COVID. My question for you is, how do you think the advent of PCR testing affects those numbers? Because my, my question would be, are we attributing a lot more deaths to COVID that perhaps weren't exactly COVID deaths now, given, given that they didn't have PCR in 1968, and now, now we do? And, okay. and, and now, before you answer, I'm going to send you a new link. So okay, we'll, let me, let me, let me, I may be proud that I get that answer in the, in the, in the, in the minute that's left. Um, okay. The, the, uh, our, our estimates of, of influenza related, related mortality are based on estimates. They're not measured because we don't do a lot of influenza testing of people who are, who are, who die. It just, we don't. So when we say 
one to four million people died of, 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 of influenza in 1968. That's an estimate. We say in Canada that, that three to 6,000 people die every year from influenza attributable mortality. We don't have the numbers. With COVID, of course, we did a lot more testing. And I think that we, I think that we overcounted some deaths, but we undercounted some others. I'm not persuaded that we got the death count very wrong. I think it's, you know, with a little bit of wiggle room. No, I think it's about right, which made it a very serious event, but but not the not anywhere close to the apocalypse that I think we were we were we were led to believe was going to happen, or that we where I think we're led to believe was happening. People had the notion that they, that someone was going to walk down their street every morning ringing a bell saying, bring out your dead. And, and it just, it just, you know, uh, I mean, frankly, I don't actually even know anyone who died. Uh, anyway, sorry. So, so we're, we're back after a break. There might be a bit of a disjoint here, which is totally on me because we had started back on a new zoom link and I forgot to record. So I'm going to, I'm going to let Richard pick up where, where okay. we had met. Yeah. And I want to talk about quarantine because I think quarantine is maybe the best example of how we completely lost the, the thread with, with, with COVID. Now quarantine is something that when I studied public health, 40 years ago, quarantine, as I as I explained uh, before we started recording again, is 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 is, is an idea. Quar quarantine, the word comes from from the quattranto, the 40 days of Lent. It's it's a medieval concept. It didn't work, and then I used used it against the plague. It didn't work then. Uh, and and when I studied public health, you know, 40 years ago, the the the, the conventional wisdom was quarantine has no place in modern public health which is why it was such a surprise when SARS rolled around in 2003 that suddenly everybody was quarantining in. I mean, they quarantined in China. They then quarantined in Singapore. So, of course, we had to quarantine here in Canada, even though it was something we'd been taught was a complete waste of time to do. And yet, yet we did it. Uh, and, and we knew on reflection, those who bothered to reflect on, on SARS, that in fact, quarantine, which is, again, let's be really clear, there's a difference between quarantine and case isolation. Mm -hmm. Case isolation is when someone is sick with a disease or you've got a positive test you know or have very good reason to believe that they're infected with the disease, you isolate them. That's fine. I have no quarrel with that. Quarantine is different. Quarantine is, is when you think someone may have been exposed to the disease and may be incubating the infection, you lock them up. That's quarantine. They're fundamentally different. And one is, one is a, I think, on balance, in, in, in case of most diseases, certainly respiratory viruses, an entirely reasonable thing to do. Say, stay home if you're sick. Okay, makes sense. Versus, oh my God, you were in the same room with someone who's sick, you have to go into 14 days of, of quarantine. So huge, different, different. So we, we, we embrace quarantine with SARS. It made no difference in, in controlling the disease. There's literature which says that, some of which was written by me. Um, and, and yet nobody, nobody got that message. When the WHO did its review, they did an excellent review in 2019 on non-pharmaceutical interventions uh, for, for, for pandemic influenza, but it was, the, it was the best evidence that was available for respiratory viruses, and it's what we should have relied on with, with COVID. When they talk about quarantine, they say there's no evidence and you should not use it under any circumstances. Don't quarantine. Doesn't, but we did without without missing a beat. Come March of 2020, 2020, we're busy quarantining people. And the, one of one of the many problems with quarantine is that it's so immensely, immensely inefficient. Uh, 
So, you know, for example, we quarantine people arriving in Canada, even though we, we, we very quickly learned that fewer than one in 200 of those people would zero convert, would in fact develop, was in fact incubating COVID. Mm. So you do the math. We're locking people up for, we're locking up like people for, for almost 10 years to identify one case of COVID at the borders. That's completely crazy. That's completely wasteful. So all these people who, who had these casual contacts with people with COVID and then were required to spend two weeks in quarantine was, 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 was completely insane. And we should have realized that we could have done the numbers. We could have done a little research and said, well, what are the zero conversion rates? What's the efficiency of this measure? No. Mm-hmm. And the reason we didn't, I think, is because without saying it explicitly, But we very quickly morphed from let's mitigate this, let's flatten the curve. We very quickly morphed into what was essentially a zero COVID mentality. Quarantine only even begins to make sense. And I'm overstating it because it never actually makes sense. But there's only only a rationale for it if you think you can stop all transmission of the disease. So that that was still driving our thinking and drove our thinking up till quite recently. And and that was never, that never made any sense. We were never going to eliminate a respiratory virus through these sorts of measures. You know, it was just, it it just, it just wasn't, wasn't going to happen. Um, And yet that drove our thinking. And so quarantine is maybe the, the, the most egregious example of bad thinking, of just not doing any critical thinking about what our interventions were. And we caused millions of people around the world, probably hundreds of millions or billions of people, significant dislocation, significant harm by forcing them into a measure that never even began to make sense. Gotcha. Yeah. And, and one of the things, again, we uh, I, I miss, missed this on a recording, but I was saying I'm, I'm sitting here in the very eastern tip of uh, Nova Scotia looking out at an island that was used as a quarantine um, island, which, you know, a lot of the communities in uh, on the east coast have these where, you know, a ship of a cholera ridden ship would come into the harbor and they would be required under the quarantine act to to wait until people were well before they came into town there to me that made some sense because it was a this asymmetrical risk these these people there was a lot of cholera on the boat a lot of them were sick there was no cholera in town and if you introduced cholera into town you knew there was going to be an outbreak whereas there's this with covid it seemed like there's a symmetrical risk Uh, we were all uh, there's fundamental shift that i felt where we all got pegged as being dirty and unclean and a potential risk Whereas we're just human beings, and we can always pass something to each other. We're always a risk to each other, but we accept that, and it's somehow it's symmetrical. We can choose. Nobody has to go out. Nobody has to hug anyone, but some of us choose to. You know. But I felt like, yeah, yeah, it would be it would be the equivalent of during the AIDS epidemic if they had about lawed sex. You know, uh, just yeah. I mean, I think I think ultimately um, the use of quarantine and our willingness to accept quarantine was 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 fundamentally fear driven uh, i think what really distinguished covid from a lot for even even from 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 aids 30 years ago you know in, in, in aids 30 years ago the vast majority of people even though there was a lot of fear over it, i remember back in the early 80s a lot of fear but the vast majority of people realized they weren't gay they weren't sexually promiscuous they really weren't personally at risk from this so they weren't happy about it, but but there was no there's no public panic. With COVID, 
I think everybody up to and including the, uh, the, the, the decision makers, you know, particularly the political decision makers, were actually very fearful of this. You know, I, I mean, I, I, I lived most of my life in British Columbia, and I thought there was a sea change in the British Columbia government's attitude towards COVID when Premier Horgan got it. You could just see he got it. He recovered. He was fine. You could then see this sort of difference in approach. Suddenly, they weren't so uptight about it. But we were all made so afraid of this. We all, we were basically led to believe that we were all going to die or we were all at meaningful risk of dying from this. And it just wasn't true. It just wasn't true. Yes, some people were people living in long-term care homes that have outbreaks, really serious business. Frail yeah. elderly, if they get infected, yeah, you know, 5%, 10% chance of dying. Probably people over 90, it was a, a serious risk. But, you know, of course, being frail elderly is a pretty risky occupation at the best of times. So you add that to the competing mortality risk, and it doesn't really look so terribly frightening. But all of the rest of us, people who were really at, at it, it's, it's like driving your car. You know, you can drive a safe car, you can wear your seatbelt, you can be sober, you can follow the laws, and we're fine with that. We know we can still be killed. We know someone can still T-bone us or, or, or run us off the road or something, some terrible catastrophe, but we accept that and we don't worry about it a lot. Mm -hmm. The same should have been true about COVID. Most of us should have realized that, yeah, it's an additional risk. It's not something we expected, but the risk for us is very, very small. And we should be somewhat cognizant of it, just as we're cognizant about driving safely. But we should continue to live our lives in that context. But we were not encouraged to do that. We were continue, We were encouraged, in fact, required to view this as some sort of extraordinary, unprecedented, ex existential risk to our existence. Mm. And it wasn't. Mm. Uh, how do you think medical officers of health all across Canada and all across the world, for the most part, uh, lost the plot so badly and, and didn't have any sense of balance. Like it seemed like COVID, COVID risk reduction and get, keeping numbers low was the only thing that mattered all of a sudden. I've never seen that ever from public health about anything. And, and how, why do you think that happened everywhere? Yeah, I, I you know, I, 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 as I say, it's, it didn't happen quite everywhere. I mean, the people in Sweden were, yes, were, were not, they, everywhere. They, they, not everywhere. Uh, but I think I think they were I think they were intimidated and overwhelmed by 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 uh, by the social and uh, the the way the plot was captured so quickly uh, by the fear mongering, uh, the way the media captured it. Uh, uh, I think there is I mean, I know that there are there are there are public health officers in Canada. I think probably many public health officers in Canada who have been profoundly unhappy about what's about what's happened i've come i don't I won't name who they are the ones there are half a dozen who i've been in regular contact with over the course of of the last couple of years who who who, who are uncomfortable with what's happened but they are not willing to speak out because that's a complete career it's a career limiting move that, mm. that that it would take a very brave public official because you, you would likely be fired the next day. And very few people are prepared to do that. I think maybe some of them should, but, but they didn't. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm not making excuses for them. I think, mm -hmm. I think again, even, even if they had been a little more honest, even if they had said things like, I'll come back to masks, even if they'd said for masks, the evidence is not strong. We think it's a good idea. We're going to recommend it, but let's not overstate the evidence. 
None of them did that. They allowed the others, the Teresa Tams of the world, who stood up and said, oh, no, it's proven they work, mm-hmm. even though they knew that wasn't true. And they accepted that. And that became the standard standard for even if just once they'd stood up and said, let's put this whole problem in perspective. But 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 they didn't. So I'm not letting them off the hook. I think as as a group, they have dropped the ball very badly. Gotcha. Um, as a former medical officer of health and very, uh, you know, very experienced person in public health, how how do we weigh intangibles, or is that even public health's role? For instance, like, so if we could have a policy for Ontario where we could say we know this policy for sure will save 100 lives who would have died from COVID. <laughs> but it's going to make all 14 million people miserable and, and really impact our lives. Like, how do you weigh that out? Do you, do you put that policy in place? Do you not put it in place? Who decides that? Well, again, in the context of, of COVID, because it was all done under emergency power legislation, that's what the politicians should have done. The politicians should have said, well, yeah, I mean, and public health should have advised them on it too, but these are, these are social decisions, but even public health needs to look at that and say, you know, we think, we, take the schools, for example. Now, the schools were closed right at the beginning, way back in, in, in March of 2020. We closed the schools across Canada. Uh, and, and it was based on the assumption that, that COVID, would, that schools would be a major focus of the spread of COVID the way we think influenza is spread. Schools are a major engine for the spread of, 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 of influenza. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't any evidence. And closing schools is a very serious thing to do for a week or two, let alone for three months, which is what happened in, 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 in 2020. Uh, in Ontario, it was, almost, it was almost four months that the schools were closed in, in, that, in that spring. And, and of course, it's the job of public health to say, well, we need to question this decision. We need to look very critically because we know how important education is. It's the job of politicians to also say it's a fundamental right. That's not necessarily public health job, but even public health should have said we know how important education is to, to the long-term social determinants of health. We need to be very cautious about this. And over the course of, of the spring, there, in fact, was evidence emerging, particularly from jurisdictions like Sweden that never closed their elementary schools, that in fact, there wasn't a lot of transmission in right. And, you know, to her credit, Bonnie Henry in British Columbia, I'm critical of many things Bonnie said and did, but she said, come June, she said, schools are opening and I'm not going to close the schools again. And exception of one week in January of 2021, where they opened a, a week late after Christmas, she didn't. Mm-hmm. But Ontario kept closing the schools. Ontario kept without without evidence, in fact, contrary to the evidence, Ontario kept closing the schools. Now, presumably, that was based on public health advice that this was a useful thing to do, and on the government's decision that they thought it was more important to, to, to whatever contribution that made to controlling COVID, that was more important than all of the educational and social ramifications of closing the schools. Hmm. So, I mean, I'd hold that out as probably, you know, among the most egregious examples of really, really bad, unbalanced decision making uh, with COVID. And one that, you know, even from a justice standpoint, you know, there's there's a there's a um, there's a, a famous sort of 
justice problem or ethical problem that, that you're you're a you're a railway switchman and you're on a bridge looking over a railway line and you see a train is broken loose and is about to run into six people who are sitting on the, the track or standing on the track and are about to be killed but you have the opportunity to flip the switch and it'll go on to another line where there's only one person mm-hmm. and it's there's a very classic apparently ethical dilemma and i must say when i first heard about that being a good public health person i'm a utilitarian greatest good for the greatest number i said what's the problem of course one person versus six you flip the switch but in fact i understand now COVID has led me to understand why that is such a dilemma because there's a fundamental difference between accepting the consequences of a natural disaster Mm-hmm. and deliberately harming people who are not otherwise at risk. So, yes, only one person dies if you flip that switch, but that person is not going to die as the, exam- as the result of an accident. They're going to die as the result of your deliberate decision to kill them. Mm-hmm. We made the same decision with kids, except, of course, without any evidence, really, to justify, at least with the, in the railway analogy, you know it's going to work. We didn't even know it was going to work, but we made the deliberate decision to sacrifice the well-being of our children because we, as adults, particularly older adults, were afraid. And that was fundamentally the wrong, wrong thing to do. And we should have said, whatever goes on in our society... We're not going to victimize people who are who we're not going to we're not going to choose to victimize one part of society to protect another. Mm -hmm. And and in particular, we are going to put the interests of our children first, because that's not only the best public health strategy. That's also a very, a very deep rooted uh, ethical responsibility for public health, for governments, for all adults. And we didn't do that at all. We didn't do that at all. We were fearful. So what the hell? Kids. No problem. Miss school. No problem. Mm. It, it it felt like the trolley problem in reverse, where we flipped the switch, where it was going to hit one person, we made it hit six. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yes. In in terms of in terms of numbers or in terms of long term harm, yeah, I agree with that. But then it's like it's like putting the one person in charge of deciding to flip the switch. They see it coming towards them and say, "No, no, yeah. do them instead. Do them instead." And 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 of course, the irony is that. There was never any evidence that it worked. There's no reason to think that, that closing the schools. In fact, I think there's now very good evidence that closing the schools made little or no difference in terms of, of COVID mortality. British Columbia, which, as I said, did far better than Ontario and Quebec in keeping their schools open, had substantially lower population mortality. Mm-hmm. I don't know why, but it certainly wasn't because of schools. And, and the evidence from Sweden is very clear that there was very little transmission in schools and many jurisdictions in the United States. You know, you had this incredible situation in the United States, uh, you know, a year ago, a year and a half ago, where it was, it was the Democrats who were saying, let's close the schools, let's close the schools. And the crazy Republicans, the otherwise crazy Republicans were saying, no, go keep them open. And and they were right. They were Mm -hmm. right. That's, that's the most painful thing of all is the people who normally we would expect to be wrong. were actually right about that. And we, we, because we were making fear-based decisions. Yeah. Well, there's some interesting writing on it, how the, you know, over the last 20 to 30 years, we've had a flip where our traditional, the parties that traditionally represented the, you know, the working class, that, that poorer person in society. So in Canada, it'd be the NDP and states would be the Democrats. It's really flipped. And now they are the parties of the elite who really fought for the rights of the laptop classes to stay home and be 
Fed reach, you know? Well, and, and nothing nothing brings that more, I think, illustrates that better than what happened with the the uh, the truckers, the so-called truckers protests in, in, in Ottawa, um, is that, that, in fact, the introduction of the vaccine mandate on long-distance truckers and cross-border truckers was absurd. It was done in January of 2021 when everybody else around the world was, was it 2020, 2022, when everybody else around the world was removing mandates mm-hmm. and that when mandates were starting to disappear because there was a recognition that vaccines didn't stop transmission. That's when the Trudeau government, I think, is a deliberate provocation thinking, oh, let's stir the pot a little bit here and we'll we'll get good. We'll get good public support on this. They decided to introduce a new mandate. And and, and the people who who, who were came from all kinds of perspectives. But yeah, we're primarily working class. They reacted very strongly and held the protest, which, yeah, they were disruptive and unpleasant. And I'm glad I didn't live in a condo in downtown Ottawa. But on the other hand, there was no violence. There was mm-hmm. no violence. And, and, and you know, it, it's, it's the right to protest is a, is a pretty profound and important right in, in a democracy. And yet these people, there was no attempt by the media by by the, the the what we call the elites, but certainly the, the the COVID elites, no attempt to even understand these people's perspective. To say you know they've tried to impose this on us, this mandate to take away our livelihood for no good reason at this late date, and instead we we completely vilified, we tried to understand why they were doing it. They were simply vilified, mm-hmm. and then we went to the absurd and extreme measure of the Emergency Powers Act of basically declaring martial law in Canada because some truckers are honking their horns in downtown Ottawa. It was just, it was just, it just made no sense. I remember when Trudeau Sr. introduced the first War Measures Act in 1970, and it was all the left-wingers, including me, who said, whoa, whoa, we know these guys are running around in Ottawa, in Montreal, rather. There are a couple of dozen of them, maybe, with guns, and they've killed someone, and that's a a bad thing to do, but it's not a national emergency. You don't need to bring in the army. And yet, here we flip forward 50 years later, essentially the same people are saying, oh, yeah, yeah, we have to do all of this because they're honking their horns and keeping people awake at night. Mm -hmm. We didn't. It's like with the whole issues with vaccines, instead of trying to understand why people, why some people are resistant to the vaccines, we tried to ram it down their throats. And that was counterproductive. And as the as vaccines did not live up to all of their billing, all of the overpromising, not in terms of preventing serious illness and death, but in terms of preventing transmission, it just further undermined public confidence. I think it's been very badly handled, continues to be very badly handled by public health. Right. Um, I could I could actually talk to you all day about this stuff, but I, <laughs> I, I will uh, maybe kind of conclude with, I, I thought that it was very interesting uh, you were a sort of a regular go-to commentator on CBC or, or semi-regular, as I understand, until you made the mistake of saying the wrong thing about COVID. And maybe you could tell us a bit about that. And have you been asked back? Have you ever been back on CBC since? No, it's interesting. So I, 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 I don't know how many hundreds of times I was on CBC radio or TV over the years on a variety of subjects, but, but often on things related to, to infectious diseases. Um, and, um, and I retired in, 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 in 20, 2017. 
So I didn't, wasn't on, but when COVID emerged, I got, I was still on the Rolodex. So I got, I got some calls and, and I did some interviews for CBC and CTV, um, you know, like on, I, I did, and my last one actually was on on, on CBC News World at, at seven o'clock on a Sunday morning. So I anticipated an, an audience of about four people. Uh, but but anyway, I'm happy to do it because I thought it was a perspective that that need to be set. Mm-hmm. And so I spoke about many of the things I spoke about now. Now I didn't get everything right. I thought that the total impact of COVID would be much less than it turned out to be. But there were many things I said, like the unreliability of the models and 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 the, the need to put this in perspective and the need to be sure we were doing doing the right things to control it, things that I think were very prescient. So I spoke seven o'clock on a Sunday morning and within a, about an hour, there was a bit of a social media storm of people saying, you can't let this person speak. You can't let them speak, including one saying he's a climate change denier. Uh-huh. Climate change denier, the ultimate, the ultimate uh-huh. insult. And within two hours, there was a message coming out from someone very senior in, uh, in CBC News saying, you're not to interview Dr. Shabas or, or one of my other colleagues who had nothing to do with this. He's not to be interviewed on this subject because he is akin to a a climate change denier. And from that day forth, I've had no contact from CBC. I've testified in front of the House of Commons. I've done a month debate. I've done many things, but my phone has rung a couple of times from CBC where the producer would speak to me and they'd say, oh, this is really interesting. We've got to have you on air. And then I never hear back from them because presumably they go back and check the file and say, no, no, he's on the no fly list. So I don't I don't fly. Um, and I think that's I think that's shocking. I think someone in an, in, a, in, a, in an administrative capacity has made a decision about science and about what scientific views should be should be reflected. Instead, they they interview people like Colin Furness, who's a librarian, professor of library science. He's an expert, but I'm not shocking. Mm in my opinion, shocking, but we've suffered from that. It's not just with me. We have suffered from the, 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 the elimination of discussion and debate. You look at the United States, you look at Britain, far more public discussion of these issues than there is in Canada. Canada mm-hmm. has been, I think, really unique in the way we have simply not tolerated dissent on this. We've made up our mind that we had all the answers. Anybody who spoke out against us was not only wrong, they had no right to a platform. I wrote an, an op-ed piece in, I think it was in May or June of 2020, I thought a very good opinion piece, co-authored it with Dr. Vivek Goel, who was the former pre- president of Public Health Ontario. So you had the former chief MOH, the former president of Public Health Ontario, writing an opinion piece saying we need to be more balanced in our approach. We couldn't get anyone to publish it. No one in the mainstream media, Globe, The Star, The Post, nobody. So they're busy publishing articles by emergency room doctors who, with all due respect, don't really aren't really expert in this area. But here are two of the senior senior experts in, in Ontario. I think speaking certainly Vivek, widely respected, and, and yet no one was interested in publishing it. We weren't interested in dissenting views. And we have paid a huge price for that because in fact, you need those dissenting views, even if the dissenting views are wrong. It's really, really important to challenge the accepted wisdom to make sure that you really understand that you're right. And we haven't done that. And I, I think we paid a price for it. 
Right. And I, I will tell you, just as we wrap up, I've, I'm very, very happy to hear what you have to say, because, uh, you know, as someone who was fired for more or less saying publicly that I didn't think schools should be shut and that I didn't think people should be forced to be vaccinated, those were my my crimes I was fired for. And I, it's just so nice to hear somebody with your length and breadth of experience who, who seems to think along the same lines as me. I, I really appreciate it. And I also want to say, I totally, I'm smiling because I totally agree with the the idea that uh, we would make public health decisions based on what ER or ICU doctors see in their practice is completely ridiculous because I call these areas, they're, they're concentrators of disease and, and things that are really not dangerous on a public health level can look very dangerous when you work in an emergency room. Uh, for instance, no, nobody would ever ride a bicycle or uh, drive in a car if they worked in an emergency room for a week, you know what I mean? And, and made decisions based on that. So, so it's and, the, and wrong, the wrong end of the telescope, as I said. And I, I know we've just got a couple minutes left. So just one, one note I want to end on is I think, and, and very much in line with that, is the way in which we have become, it's become so partisan. It's, it's, it's not only so political, but so partisan. It's, 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 it's good versus evil in this. And that's fundamentally the wrong way of looking at it. And just as an example, there's a, a study that was published a, a couple of weeks ago in an American journal, but it came out of a Sunnybrook Hospital in Toronto. Uh, where they got in Ontario data and they purported to show that people who were, quote, vaccine hesitant in July of 2021, so we're talking about uh, about a year and a half ago, that group of people were more likely to be in car accidents or, or be in pedestrian accidents. They were more dangerous as drivers, passengers, and pedestrians than people who were fully vaccinated. And these, these authors drew the conclusion that therefore these people should have to pay higher insurance rates because mm. they concluded that the reason this was was because these people probably just didn't follow the law. They didn't follow it on vaccine. Right. You know, right. There was no evidence to support that. And when you look at the methodology, you recognize that they didn't take into account things like distance driven because they didn't have that data. They didn't take into account account. Um, uh, occupation, because many of these people were also people who had to drive for a living. All those sorts of things were just just not included. So the analysis was flawed. But what was far more flawed was the whole rationale. Is that here we were trying to trying to identify a group of people a year and a half ago when fourteen percent or I think sixteen percent of the Ontario population was quote vaccine hesitant, not being up to date, and to and to and to vilify them, mm. to stigmatize them as being not only unvaccinated, but as being bad people, people who probably shouldn't be allowed to drive or certainly should pay higher insurance rates. And why would you do that? Particularly mm -hmm. now that in a year and a half later, 86% of the Canadian population is now vaccine hesitant. But it was an attempt, the whole purpose of the paper was to stigmatize, to vilify. And that's not what we need to do. We need to understand. We need to understand why some people are reluctant to do things, things that in some cases they should do. And we, in public health, we need to be reflective on why we have been so coercive and how often we have been wrong, how we forced healthy young men to be vaccinated, mm -hmm. to go to university, to participate in, in, in recreational activities. Even now, we know or we, we knew then that there was very little benefit to them. And we also know now that, in fact, there was a non-trivial risk of, of, of adverse events. It was the wrong thing to do. Instead of, instead of separating it into this Manichian world of the, the saved and the damned, 
Mm. We need to start building bridges and understanding each other's views because this polarization of society has not has not worked in our favor and I think has, has contributed to, to many of our bad decisions. Lovely. Well, that's perfect timing as my uh, my Zoom time draws to a close. Okay. I think that's a really great note to end on. Uh, I really, I really, really appreciate you spending the time with me. And uh, I think I've I've learned a lot and uh, I just really appreciate your perspective. So thanks so much. My pleasure. Great, Chris. Great to talk to you. Bye-bye. All the best. Bye.